0: The story is told of an African man who immigrated to Canada in the mid-1800s, and he married a white woman there in Canada. And the couple was blessed with a daughter who grew up to be a beautiful young woman. It was a, a businessman from America who came into contact with the family and met them, a young man with considerable means. And he began to uh, be interested in this daughter and to seek her hand in marriage from her father. Her suitor was an articulate, well-dressed, well-mannered man and had wealth and influence, particularly for his young age. He presented himself to the father as a man of integrity and initiative who could care very well for his daughter, and the family was thrilled. This man patiently and gently wooed the daughter romantically until he won her heart, and eventually the father gave his consent and the daughter Thrilled at the thought of marriage to this handsome man, wealthy, gifted, chivalrous, responsible, she was so excited for her wedding day. But tragically, on the wedding night, the young man abused the girl in unspeakable ways and then, enabled by the color of her skin, took her south into America and sold her into slavery. This evil man said all the right things. He did all the right things. He appealed to every desire to attract this young woman and convince her father he would be an ideal husband. Indeed, his deception was so thoroughgoing, he almost convinced himself that he was a good husband. But merely to feed his own sensual passions for sex and money, he deceived and devastated a family that believed what they wanted to hear, but failed to discern the truth. It's a dramatic story. It's a horrifying story. But similar atrocities are carried out on countless levels in our world every day. It may be the more simplistic but very real slick-dressing, smooth-talking salesman who sells people an expensive product that enriches him, impoverishes them, and does not fulfill any of their desires. It might be a politician who deceives voters with offers of, that are too good to be true. He's then elected and he uses his position of power in order to enrich himself, in order to gain Wealth and privilege and power while he hurts his constituents that put him in office. But the worst, the worst of all deceptions, the most sinister of empty enticements are those of spiritual teachers who distort the truth. Returning to 2 Peter chapter 2 today, and we'll look first at chapter 1, but coming back to the text of chapter 2, we pick up Peter's earnest warning against the insidious dangers of false teachers. They say all the right things, they look the right way, they tell you what you want to hear, but there is horrible danger in it. Now let's go back again, and just as we continue to repeat and refresh the message of the book, chapter 1 and verse 3 We learn as believers that His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. We are granted His precious promises. We are granted a participation in the regenerate nature of the people of God. Verse 5, for this very reason then we are to make every effort to supplement our faith with godliness. To live a righteous life because we've been redeemed by Christ. Verse 10, the same theme. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. So Christ saves us. He gives us a full package. He redeems us. And then the only right response is to live righteously. He saved us for this. So we live a faithful and godly life, living out the new life to which he's called us and confirming that we really are his people by the way that we live. The truth that Christ will return as our judge and we will be accountable to him for how we live our lives is Peter's next emphasis. This is not calling us to a work salvation, but proving the reality of our salvation, again, by demonstrating the fruit of godly, transformed living. So the key is to align our life with the truth of God's Word, which is wholly trustworthy. What He has said we can trust, chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy has ever been produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit to speak what God intended for us to know. This is what the Word of God is, but, chapter 2, but, true prophets Giving us the truth of God's word, but, chapter 2, verse 1, false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. So understanding here in the context, he's speaking of false teachers who come up from among Christian congregations. They present themselves as followers of Christ. But they will teach false doctrine. chapter 1 or chapter 2 rather verses 1 through 10 god will god makes clear that he will preserve his people from the assault of false teachers and that in the end they will come to judgment chapter 2 verse 9 then the lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and keep the righteous under unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority There are slick and wicked teachers out there. God assures us they will meet their due. He will hold them accountable. He will bring them to judgment and he will preserve his people through this false teaching and through all of the trials that they face at the hands of those who do not truly follow Christ. This is our confidence in the end. Now, as we pick up there at verse 10, in the middle of verse 10, and I think it's a good division, uh, we should uh, mark a paragraph transition here at the middle of verse 10. The Apostle Peter now describes the DNA or the anatomy of false teachers. Here's who they are. We have the confidence they will be judged. As they attack the righteous living to which Christ has called us and the truth of God's word that transforms, they will be held accountable, but here's who they are. And we get into the DNA of the false teachers here in a scathing, impassioned message. Peter relentlessly exposes the motivations and the agenda of these people. Let me go back to our terrible account to begin here this morning. Imagine. That you knew the American businessman who had come to deceive this Canadian couple and their daughter. And you were invited into this family's home and into the room as you're meeting with father and mother walks this beautiful young woman and sits down and you're sitting there in their parlor in the mid-1800s. And what are you going to say? I mean, you are going to hold nothing back. You're going to say it as carefully as you can, but as directly as you can, this guy is bad news. Don't listen to his lines. Don't hear what he has to say. He's going to tell you everything you want to hear, but he's up to no good. I know this guy. I know what motivates him. Don't let him deceive you. Wouldn't you? If you didn't have that kind of zeal, you just need to like start over. you got a problem. We want to take this guy on and say he's not going to get his way. You take the passion that would be in your soul for that conversation with that family, that's Peter here in chapter 2. He's saying, I'm not going to hold anything back. I'm going to say it the way that it is. I'm going to speak with unmitigated direct speech and tell you these guys are trouble. And so he comes to us today and he says... As he now unpacks what he's just said at the beginning of verse 10, he now begins to describe them. And for us, there is much more at stake than simply a bad marriage, as horrible as this story is. At stake here is heaven and hell, is eternal life and eternal destruction. And so holding nothing back, Peter says, let me give you the moral profile of these false teachers. Here's the profile. They are, middle verse 10, bold and willful. They are bold and willful. These two Greek words, virtually interchangeable. False teachers are characteristically self-confident, self-assertive. They're headstrong. They are not easily intimidated, as witnessed by this fact, verse 10, as we continue. They do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. We do not know enough about the historical background to know exactly what Peter's talking about. His readers understood it, but glorious ones, that doesn't hit us very easily either. There's a lot of questions in this text before us. It's pretty straightforward what he's doing, but there's a lot of phrases like this that challenge us. What are these glorious ones? Without going into detail, I think the best interpretation is that these are angels, and here fallen angels. They're not glorious in the sense of godly, but they're glorious in the sense that they have splendor. And that's brought out by parallels in the book of Jude, as well as what verse 11 will say, but they do not tremble as they blaspheme demons, I think is the point of it. Notice verse 11, Whereas, in contrast, angels, here I think we see elect angels, good angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord, or from the Lord, that they will be judged by the Lord, however we take that phrase. So these false teachers say all kinds of nasty things about demons, and they're not afraid of it all. It might indicate they don't believe that they exist. We don't know. We don't know the history. But the angels themselves have more humility. Good angels who hold a position of authority over fallen angels have enough sense of appropriateness to not accuse demons before the Lord or to pronounce judgment upon them. There's a sense in which they leave it with God. These false teachers, they just blow steam. They don't care who they're railing against or what they're saying. It's all about them. So again, though we don't know the context, there's pride and arrogance here. Verse 12, but these, like irrational animals. When he says these, I think he's talking now about the false teachers, not about demons or angels or, of course, but... Verse 12, but these, these false teachers, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. So they are arrogant and self-assured, but they're not driven by careful thought. They're driven by their instincts. They say the kinds of things people want to hear, they say the kinds of things they'd like to convince themselves are true, but in the end they will reap what they sow. You notice the play on words here, and in the Greek it's even more uh, noticeable because the words are, are very similar in sound. But you see there, verse 13, suffering wrong is the wage for their wrongdoing. Destroyed in their destruction. They will reap what they are sowing. They're not going to get away with this. There's a God of justice who will deliver righteousness and will hold them to account. They will simply receive the harm that they've been causing to others. It will come back on their head. Further description, furthering their profile here in verse 13, he says, uh, They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. Partying in the daytime was something of a proverbial description of unfettered and riotous debauchery. Uh, We read it of celebrities today. They've been living on a three-day deal where they've been taking drugs and drinking and doing all kinds of crazy things. You just see that all the time in the media reporting what somebody has done but it's it's all day long the point is they set aside huge chunks of time and they set aside all responsibility in order to pursue whatever pleasure and passion they want they tell you things they teach you things they guide you a certain way but when they have downtime they live for the flesh pursuing defiling passions they are, verse 13 continues, blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. So they have a private life where they pursue the flesh, but they also gather with you in your, in your meals. And while they revel in debauchery alone, they revel in deceiving you when they're with you. Uh, it's, we, we don't know for certain, but it's almost certain, What he's talking about here was the tradition of the early church to gather after worship to eat a meal together. They would eat a meal together, referred to as a love feast, and then after that they would celebrate the Lord's Supper, the the commemorative meal to remember the death and resurrection of Christ. Those guys are sitting here with you. They're gathering with you to remember the redemptive grace of Jesus Christ and in what they're really up to is to deceive you and draw you into what they think and what they want to teach. They are reveling in their deceptions of you while they feast along with you as followers of Christ. So they rejoice in the word and the gospel outwardly, but they are blots and blemishes on the purity of the church because they are introducing insidious, godless ideas and trying to draw you in. Verse 14, as the profile continues, they have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. Eyes full of adultery, as in the Greek text, is eyes full of an adulteress. It's like all that they can see are people that could fulfill their sexual desires. As they teach their false ideas, they're always trolling for a sexual conquest in the process. That's what they're really up to. They see every individual. Some will feed other desires that they have, but they're always out there looking and searching for a sexual conquest. That's what they're really up to. They have eyes full of an adulteress. They're insatiable for sin. Verse 14, continuing, they entice unsteady souls. That is, unstable, spiritually weak people are their target audience. They look for the spiritually gullible, for the wishy-washy. That's who they're looking for. That's who they're trolling for. And they have, verse 14, hearts trained in greed. That is, they're driven by the fleshly desire for wealth. understand Benny Hinn and Joel Olstein are worth some $40 million each. There can be a thousand ways to rationalizing this kind of wealth and amassing wealth in this way. You can talk yourself into it in a lot of ways, but the bottom line is greed. That's what drives it. A supposedly Christian message is used to fill their coffers with money. Throughout history, a number of Christians, because of their ability to write and speak and affect people, have made lots of money. An awful lot of money comes in through, in revenue, but there is also a consistent story of many of these Christians who drew a line and said, "...that's enough." They drew a line at what was reasonable and proper to live on and gave the rest away. Now, I don't think it takes rocket science to come up with that idea. You make far more than any individual could really legitimately spend, and you say, I'm going to give the majority of it to other causes. Is it that hard? Well, that is a very difficult idea for someone that's driven by greed that is saying, I will amass more and more and more and more. And I will continue to welcome into my coffers the money from other people to make myself wealthier. He's aiming at that here, and he's aiming at it hard. He's saying they are trained and exercised in greed. They are driven by the desire to make more money, and because of it, they're cursed children. The cursed children, they're teaching a message of their own making, using that message to deceive and entice people, making merchandise off of their false message. God does not look well at that. He says it's wrong, and judgment, their judgment is coming down on them. It's swooping down upon them, as we noted last week. They are objects of God's approaching judgment. Indeed, that judgment has already begun. They're beginning to receive the harm that they're doing to others. And while I do not know every individual, and I can't and we can't say this person is accursed and this person's not, we have to ultimately leave that with God as we judge individuals and ministries in an appropriate way. We leave it in God's hands. But we have to also say that there is much sensuality and greed that drives many who claim to speak for Christ. And we need to see that. We've got to see it and call it what it is, as Peter does. He continues on, verse 15, saying, "...forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression." A speechless donkey broke with human or spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Remember the Old Testament book of Numbers? Balak, the king of Moab, sees the Israelites coming out of Egypt and heading to the Promised Land, and Balak says, I don't, I don't want that. we got to stop these people. He hires Balaam as a prophet to curse the people of Israel. Driven by his greed, Balaam follows Balak's invitation to a meeting, But there is an angel of the Lord that stands in the way of Balaam's donkey and it gets so bad that the donkey actually speaks and says to Balaam what he needs to see and hear and understand. The donkey has more wisdom than the false prophet. Drawing from that example, Peter says they're just like this false prophet. They are in it for profit. They're in it for greed. They're being driven by their ability to gain what they want for themselves. That's what drives them. So their profile, they're arrogant, self-confident, ignorant. They harm others and reap the same. They're unrestrained in sensuality. There's an insatiable appetite for sin, luring others to follow their ways. They are filled with greed, opposed to God, and accursed. Anybody question what Peter thinks about them? (laughs) It's pretty obvious, isn't it? He's, and he's being very direct. And he's saying, like again, to use as that illustration, you're sitting in the home of this family. You're warning them about this terrible man that's about to destroy their family. That's what Peter's doing with the church. You've got to understand these people aren't good. They come across that way and they'll tell you what you want to hear. But there's a horrible price to pay. They're clearly people to avoid. And we see then, secondly, this is their profile, their moral profile, who they are. Secondly, at verse 17, there's a shift that emphasizes the corrupting influence that they have. So who they are and their corruption, now we see their corrupting influence upon others, beginning at verse 17. They are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. In the ancient world, drinking water was a precious commodity and a spring that was dry was a grand disappointment, if not a danger to your health and life, if you were in a dry place. They're mists driven by the storm. Probably the idea is mists that are driven away by the wind and do not provide water for the parched land. That's what their message is. That's how it affects people. It leaves people dry and empty. False teachers promise big things, but they leave nothing but emptiness in their wake. They promise meaning and fulfillment and pleasure, and their teaching produces nothing but emptiness and confusion. Verse 17, continuing. Their waterless springs, mist driven by a storm, for them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. Here's this recurring theme that they will be judged. Verse eighteen four, speaking loud, boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. That's a strange phrase, but it's not as hard as it comes across. Those barely escaping from those who live in error are new converts to Christianity. I think that's the idea of it. Barely escaping, doesn't mean by an inch, but rather more time-wise, they have recently escaped from the godless world. They've come to embrace Christ, they've come to follow Christ. It's those people that the false teachers love to target. Now think of them. It's a different context, a different day. They're coming up from within local congregations. And in those local congregations, they know the truth. They have the right ideas, they say. And where do they go to share these ideas? They don't come to those who know the scriptures best. They go to the people who know the scriptures least. They don't target those who are spiritually mature and discipling others in the Word of God and have a firm grasp upon its meaning. They target the people who really don't know what they need to know yet. And they look at them and they invite them into their conversation. Peter warns us about this. Those barely escaping from those who live in error are uniquely vulnerable to the false teacher. Their appeal, we notice here in verse 18, is to the flesh. That is, they teach foolish ideas, but people follow them because those ideas are so sensually pleasing. Why do false teachers make money? Why do lots of people come to attend to their message? Because they're telling people what they want to hear. It's that simple. There's an appeal to us. The appeal of this wicked man to this young Canadian woman was, you are attractive to me. I am pleased with you. I want to serve as your husband for the rest of your life she wants to hear those things. There's an attraction to that kind of conversation. The guy is nothing but an absolute demon, but he uses speech that appeals to something that really hits you at the heart level. They tell people what they want to hear. They promise people what they want to get with haughty, bombastic, empty claims. They entice and bait others to follow their false teaching. That's their way. They're going to appeal to what you want to hear. Verse 19, they promise them freedom. We're not told freedom from what, but the context would indicate freedom from moral restraint on some level. You can actually be freer to live how you feel like living and still be a good Christian. It's a wonderful deal we have for you here. It's a two-for-one. You can follow Christ, get to heaven, and you can live however you choose. Well, untrained, unstable people who are driven by sensual interests hear that message and say, I like that. I didn't know we could do that. Oh, you can. Let me talk to you about it. They follow their teaching. The irony is, as verse 19 continues, they themselves are slaves of corruption, for whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. What are they enslaved by? Greed and sensual desires of a thousand kinds. As they marshal their swelling words and novel ideas, they claim to provide freedom, but in the end they preach a message that enslaves both them and their followers. It enslaves people to sensual desire, to greed, to selfishness, to pride. This is serious stuff. If you embrace false teaching, the false teaching will enslave you to sinful habits and ways. And you can know that. Ultimately, it will enslave you to yourself and your passions. The only liberation of slavery to self is willing slavery to the Lord Jesus Christ as the master of our soul. Even the Roman moralist Seneca, as one commentator noted, saw this idea when he said, to be enslaved to oneself is the heaviest of all servitudes. To be enslaved to self is the heaviest of all servitudes. To be enslaved to Christ alone is liberty. These people put together a package that is so appealing, it tells you what you want to hear, it offers to you what your flesh desires, and says you can be a faithful Christian and embrace this thinking. And all it really does is enslave you to self. Now it's, it's my understanding of the text that here at verse 20, Peter continues to describe the false teachers and their situation. Verse 20, he says, For if after they, and I think that's the false teachers, for if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, then the last state has become worse for them than the first. To escape the defilements of the world through the knowledge of Jesus may describe regeneration. That might be how we would talk about someone who's come to saving faith, but not necessarily. Do you believe? I think it's possible. People can come to know about Jesus and straighten their life up. They can make moral progress, at least in comparison with other people. They can stop doing certain things that are wrong and start doing some things they've been neglecting because they get in the context of knowing about Jesus and His teaching. Joining with a Christian church can have influence on one's behavior, and it should. But these false teachers by embracing false doctrine, become once again entangled then in sinful lifestyles. When this happens, Peter says, they're in worse shape than before they heard the gospel. Before hearing the gospel, there is hope a person will hear and receive it. But once you've professed faith in Christ and then turned away from that way, what's going to lead you to embrace it again? Verse 21 For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. That's what's happened. They haven't really been changed. It's the nature of a pig to get back in the mud as fast as possible and it's the nature of dogs for reasons unknown to well you can read it (laughs) pretty graphic isn't it that's what they've that's what they're like that's who they are and even though they came for a time to clean up their act in the presence of God's people they really are still by nature a pig and a dog but we got to always have help with the dog part they they weren't pets Dogs were roaming in packs, scrawny, ugly, dangerous animals that ate garbage. That's the dog is how they would think of it often in the ancient context. And that's the idea here. It's too far, I think, to say that someone who leaves the faith can never come back. But there certainly is no long list of them, is there? These false teachers would be better off having never professed faith in Christ crucified and risen because they are now all the more confirmed in their sin well let's take a trail here i think it's probably time to do that it was suggested to us last week by the text and let's look at this text today we ask the question because of passages like this and others particularly in the book of hebrews let's say have these false teachers lost their salvation were they given salvation by christ and then they lost it they gave it up you know i'd say first of all when we ask this question i'm coming more and more to the understanding that we're not asking a question the bible really answers It does implicitly, and I think it's a worthy question to ask as we do systematic theology and try to understand these ideas, but it's not one that, the Bible doesn't really go after it that way. Can a person lose their salvation uh, once they have received it? It just doesn't really answer it like that. The answer to this question is legitimate, but implicit, not so much an explicit section of Scripture. To say it another way, both sides of this debate will find passages to prove their point. Here, this passage certainly shows these people were changed by Christ and now they've lost their salvation. Other passages we can point to would indicate there's no way on earth that that's possible. But let's bring it together in this debate And as we work out what the text of Scripture says, remember this, I think we can all agree on this. The Bible places the emphasis on how we live. That's where the emphasis really lands, on how we live as followers of Christ. Not on the theoretical answer of whether or not Christians can lose their salvation. The Bible emphasizes that those who are genuinely saved persevere to the end of their lives in faith. They will sin They will need to continue to repent and confess their sins every day. They may struggle with doubts about the faith, but they will never abandon the faith. They will continue to cling to it and trust in it and walk in its light. Those who do not persevere reveal that they were never regenerated. Others would argue this indicates they've lost their salvation, but because the Bible teaches God chooses and preserves His people, because nothing can thwart God's plan, I don't believe a genuine believer can lose the new birth. That what God has put into motion, a person can undo. But again, the more objective and practical matter, the matter the Bible emphasizes, is how we live. Are we living out the new life of regeneration are we being transformed in the way that we think and how we live our life that's the evidence of it it's not so much a debate about whether one can lose their salvation or not if somebody is not living out righteous the righteous life that comes with saving grace then we have questions and that's what that person needs to look at As we go back to 1 Peter chapter 1, I think Peter states here fairly clearly in my understanding what he thinks about salvation and whether it can be relinquished by sinful disobedience. Chapter 1 and verse 1 of 1 Peter, the apostle says to those who are elect exiles, that is the emphasis placed on the choice that God has made of them while they have certainly chosen Christ. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again, the better translation is He has rebirthed us, He's given us new birth, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We are birthed by God. Verse 3. Who, verse 5, guards us through faith for salvation. So there is the election of God, the birth by God, and... The guarding of us through our persevering faith, again, a work of God. So for Peter to now be teaching us that people can lose their salvation seems to me to be a conflict. And I understand the reason that people come to that conclusion. There are warning texts in Scripture that certainly seem to indicate one can fall away from the faith. Hebrews 3 and 6 and 10, 1 Corinthians 10, and Jude 4 and 6 and 2 Peter 2, right here. I would say this, that none of these texts is provided to prove that believers lose their salvation. It's simply an inference that is drawn by those who would interpret those texts that way. It seems to be the case that these false teachers were saved and lost their salvation. But that's not the explicit teaching of the passage. That's an inference we draw on the basis of what seems to meet us here in this text. But let me just point to one passage that I think would be on the other side of the equation very convincing. Romans 5 verse 9, for instance. Romans 5 and verse 9 We have been reborn, we have been reconciled, we have been justified, and we will be saved from His wrath because of the work that Christ has done is the context of the book of Romans. Chapter 8 of Romans and verse 29, Romans 8 and verse 29, for whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he glorified, those he justified, he also glorified. The glorified is in the past tense here. It's a done deal. Those that he foreknew. He justifies, declares righteous, and He glorifies, even though none of us is glorified. If our salvation starts with God's initiative, if God's purposes to save His people, if it is illogical to think that we can reverse and override what God intends to do from eternity past, then, warning texts such as 1 Peter or 2 Peter 2 here come down to one of three possibilities. Now I realize there's difference of opinion on this, and I'm, I'm less troubled by it in some respects than maybe I have been in the past because, again, I think the issue is how do you live? Whether someone can lose their salvation or not, how are we living? Are we persevering in the faith? That's where the Bible puts the emphasis. But, How do we read this text then? If they've not lost their salvation, then what has happened? Some people say this is just hypothetical. Very unsatisfying to me because Peter just does not sound like he's talking about something hypothetical and has just veered off into theoretical here. He's saying you've got to to persevere. These people have left the body of believers and the message that's going to save them. I won't labor on that. Secondly, some say it's loss of reward. That there's no judgment here to these false teachers because they are saved. They're just losing reward in heaven. Why I I would really be troubled with that thought by how many times Peter says destruction. He's not talking about losing something. He's saying destroyed over and again. 2, 1 through 3, 9 and 12. Sodom, as he uses as an example, did not lose reward. They were crushed by the judgment of God. How could the point of chapter 2 and verse 20 be that it's better to be lost than to lose reward? It's better had they never heard the message of the gospel. That makes no sense. If what they're losing is reward, why would you say they'd be better off lost than to go to heaven and lose reward? It's irrational. I think the only option left to us is that those warned are not really believers. These who have returned to their own vomit, these who have returned to the mud pile, are showing who they really were all along. Do you have any evidence of that? I think there's one really interesting connection to it, and that's found in John and Jesus' teachings. Push with me just a little further here. We don't talk of this often, but it really comes up in this text. And There's a very fascinating exchange here in John chapter 8 that I think puts a light on this very situation. Now, verse 31 of John 8, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him. Now when you read that, what do you think? They're believers. They're Christians. They've trusted Christ as their Savior, right? He's talking to people who had believed in him. If you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples. What is he saying? If you walk with me and you continue to live faithfully before me, then you're my disciple. But I'd like you to go down to verse 44 as he's talking to this very same people and he comes to this conclusion. You are of your father the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. Now that is weird if we're not thinking right. You have believed in Jesus, but you're of your father the devil. What is going on there? I think what's going on there is what we see with these false teachers and what we find, I think, in various places of the New Testament, and that is that there are actually three categories of people. There are those who have never believed in the gospel, there are those who have, and, those, and there are those who appear to have believed the gospel. They're here in John 8. They believe in Jesus but they're of their father, the devil. So I think what we have to understand is that there's a fine nuance in the New Testament between those who are genuinely saved and those who are not. Those who never genuinely possessed Christ did not come to know Him in a genuinely saving way. And what is the proof? We come back to it again. It's how they live. Let's not be overly worked about whether one can lose their salvation or not lose their salvation. Let's come down to this fact, do we persevere in the faith? What a person's relationship is with Christ, ultimately we cannot know. But I can know how you live. Do you live a faithful life before Christ? Is it clear that you're rooting out sin? Is it clear that you're making progress in the faith? Are you saying, I don't want to go anywhere else because Christ has the words of life? Where else would I go? What else would I do? I want no other Savior. I just want to know Him better. And you may be struggling with doubt and you may be struggling with sin and you may be struggling as a Christian in a thousand ways, but you say, I want to know Him better. I love Him. I know He's my Savior. I know He's given Himself for me. That's the evidence of genuine faith that keeps clinging and keeps pursuing Christ. And it's that kind of faith that evidences salvation. So, as we just close some thoughts here with this passage. You get the distinct impression from this passage that false teaching is a very important issue for Peter. And it should be for us. Peter pleads with us to know that false teaching can ruin us. It's not something to mess around with. To dabble in new ideas. And I think one of the dangers that is there for us is a lack of biblical knowledge. This is why false teachers go after new converts. Because they don't sniff out the false teaching and where it may lead. The danger for us, secondly, is boredom with the truth. A lust for novel ideas. We've heard this passage before. We know the Bible. We've considered this account, this narrative. We know this doctrine. And somebody comes along with interesting teaching. We tag into it like this is going to be something special. And all it is is a deceptive lie. Another danger is the love for sensual pleasures of many kinds, including material greed. And when someone takes the Bible and tells us we can have all we want, it's enticing. We see it in our world in the false teachers who peddle salvation by works who teach that you can be gloriously wealthy and absolutely healthy if you will just believe my teaching, says some. And then others, the work of Christ and His sacrifice and His death are not essential. We can be good people, but we don't need a risen Christ. And on it goes. But these teachers come across with self-confidence, with sensual appeal, promises of fulfillment and meaning in life are flowing from their mouth but they leave people empty and lost. How utterly important it is for us then to continue learning the whole counsel of God in a Bible-teaching church. You may not agree with me on everything. We may not agree with each other on everything, but we agree on the fact that the Bible is God's Word and we want to understand its true meaning. And we'll push each other, we'll disagree with each other, we'll sharpen each other, we'll change views on certain texts over time as we grapple with them and think about them, but we are saying this is God's Word and this is what gives us a foundation. There is a world of demonic temptation out there. There are false teachers that abound. What we must do is study God's Word. Not just to find answers for the moment or answers for the most recent problem, but to so nurture our minds in the truth that we detect false teaching from miles away. We must study to know the difference between what is small and what is big, what is right and what is wrong, what is worthy of discussion and what is false doctrine. Now think about it. I can use the picture again of you sitting in the room with this family and warning them about this bad man. We can picture Peter sitting across a table from us and with impassioned desire saying, avoid false teachers, detect them, know who they are, discern them. What is at stake? Here it is. Think of it. Embrace false doctrine. Get mixed up with those who teach false ideas and this is what comes. Destruction will be swooping down upon you. You will chase after defiling passions and live in opposition to authority. You will rage against the truth and spend your days promoting foolish ideas in your spiritual ignorance. Your sinful lifestyle will boomerang back upon you and exact a terrible toll. Your soul will be filled with a raging lust for fleeting pleasures that satisfy momentarily but leave you utterly empty. You will begin to entice other believers to follow your empty ways. You will grasp at money in ways that damage others and shrink your soul. Your life will have no substance. It will be dry and unfulfilling. Refusing slavery to Christ, you'll be enslaved to sin. And it will in the end be better that you had never heard the name of Christ than to bow the knee before the risen Savior whose saving grace you have knowingly and purposefully rejected. To say it simply, the truth of God's Word is life. This truth sanctifies, it changes, it enlivens, it sustains. And so anything coming against that truth does the exact opposite. We have to be flexible and understanding with one another. We need to realize that we don't all see the truth of God's Word the same way, but we need to come together as a church and hold hands and say, We will defend the truth of God's Word against all false teaching. There's some things that aren't so obvious, there are some things that are very obvious. Do we have the backbone? Do we have the love for Christ to stand for the truth and preserve that truth as defenders of the faith and as those who participate in the sanctifying grace of the truth? This is our call, and this is important. And this is why you preach through books. Because I don't think anybody came to church today saying, I am desperately interested in learning about false teachers. And if you're going to choose passages that just excite people and interest people and entertain people, you are going to skip 2 Peter 2. But there is an apostle who with impassioned, direct speech says to us, truth matters. Let's hear it. Let's allow it to sink in. And let's hold that truth high because only the truth of God gives life, sustains, strengthens, and blesses. Let's bow for prayer. Father, as you give us opportunity to work out some of the details of this text in our own personal lives this week and today, and by your grace even in some, some of us gathered in homes and here at the church to do that this afternoon, I pray that you'd pour out your blessing upon it. I admit to you that it is nothing but certainly weakness in me. But I just don't know that I'd ever invent this sermon. I thank you for the direction, the yoke of the Bible that we put on and find to direct us rightly. And we need this. We need to be nurtured and strengthened in the importance of the truth and to know that there is insidious teaching that is rampant. There are masses of people that are gathering across the face of this globe to hear people tell them what they want to hear and they're being enslaved. Help us to avoid it. Help us to work out in our groups this afternoon how to avoid it as a church. But we stop here and with great thanks of heart give you praise that you have delivered your life-giving, life-directing, life-transforming truth. We embrace it. We thank you for it. And pray that we will grow in it to the glory of your name and for the joy of our souls. Through Christ we pray. Amen.